Shafee. Shafee, are you there? Under the cheese cloth. God damn it, man. The Doobie Brothers broke up. Shit. When did that happen? Night has fallen over the hill country. The bats underneath the South Congress Bridge have vacated their beds to begin their evening feed. My bed is vacated too because I'm sitting here and talking into a microphone in my ivy-covered cave here on the east side of Austin, Texas. I have jumped through the hoops connect via the internet to north central Austin, Texas, so I can talk to my good friend, the pride of Tarzana, California, Matthew Rampey. When you get caught between the mic and me and Shafee, the best that you can do, the best that you can do is turn it up. Hey, Shafee. Haha, that was a good one. Uh, Christopher Cross? Yeah, Arthur's theme. Did, but did, I, did, I bet Christopher Cross didn't write that song. It was probably like Burt Bacharach or Henry Mancini or something like that. Do you know off the top of your head? No, but I've got my homework uh, for the next uh, cast <laughs> laid out before me here. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of music, Shafee, and who wrote what, um, I wanted to uh, just take a minute and remember some great musicians and a great Lubbockite. Uh, yesterday was the 62nd anniversary of the day the music died. Uh, oh, for, wow. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, that was a, a plane crash uh, in Iowa. And on that plane was Buddy Holly. And um, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper and the inept pilot. And and you chose not to do an extended parody of that song. <laughs> the day the music died. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I think <laughs> the whole world breathes a sigh of relief. I was waiting for I was waiting for next year for the sixty third. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good a good uh well it's not a prime number, but it's a good number. Well, I it also seems appropriate because here we are in the sixties ourselves. Welcome to episode sixty eight. One magical hour. Yeah. Where it seems like we've learned how to podcast. We are at least putting on a good good show or at least at least to put up the, uh, the illusion that we're a couple of experienced podcasters. No, doing something 70 times makes you experienced at it, I think. Well, I hope that uh, at 70, it really sounds real good. We still, we still sometimes forget to hit the record button. Yeah. We still... Uh, I see the red light. ...have trouble. Uh, my pops got at me about some, uh, some, some trouble with his levels. He, uh, 
Um, and I, I think it's, you know, it's mostly his equipment, but I, you know, do you, you kind of, you kind of turn down the levels on us when, once we get rolling, like after the introduction? No, I pretty much have to boost our levels the whole time. But was he listening oh, to, was he listening to which episode? It was the Renee episode. And he said, um, he said he could just barely hear the beginning. And then when, when we started, we dropped out entirely. I think that we have an imperfect system. I think that we both need a little uh, AD converter preamps that go from our microphones into our computers. I, I, I don't think that we can boost. I try to just boost this compressed track that we get from the platform that we're using to record and Nobody wants to hear the back end issues, oh, but that's, <laughs> but, that's, but why one, that's why one nation comes here. Is we, we assure you that we're it's aware of it. And we're moving in the right direction all the time, onward and upward. Takes a vaguely educated technical audio talk. Takes a long time to get out of the muck and the mire of just hunting and gathering for and your sustenance. Dad wasn't suggesting that we do anything different because, you know, pretty much everybody else was actually able to hear the audio. So uh, he was just commenting on it. And I listened to that episode. I, I didn't find it that much different than some of our other endeavors, which are Im imperfect. I agree. I was reading about the day the music died and Buddy Holly had actually broken up with the crickets uh, before he was on this particular tour that he was on this like, winter dance hall tour or something and yeah. he was he felt like he needed to go back on tour because he was trying to save up money to move to new york city oh wow and i just think it's such a weird snapshot we have of buddy and um what would his life have become like would he have grown and changed like a madonna of the 50s and 60s or would he uh, would he have been uh, more of a one-hit wonder type, you know? Like, maybe he was popular for his style of of uh, stealing black music, but... I mean, I feel like he had a lot of... Just in the short time, he had a lot of hits. So, uh, I, yeah, I don't think he would have been a one-hit wonder. And I think he was really interested in breaking out of the kind of country, uh, you know, country music mold. I know, and, I know how he feels. And uh, I'm not, I don't like country music. And ex exploring, uh, you know, exploring, you know, this new country of rock and roll um, that he had found. America, so, I the rock it, and roll country. I think it would have, it would have been very interesting. It's definitely, uh, you know, tragic and a little sad. You know, speaking of rock and roll, I. I did not know that the Doobie Brothers had broken up. I just heard that on the drop. When did this happen? <laughs> Speaking of drops. I'm trying to remember. I can't, I can't remember the name of Michael Douglas's character in that, in that movie, in Romancing the Sun. They're Gene Wilder. Amando Dismo. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's what she calls him. She's like, I know your type. You... You are just, you're a scumbag, you know, you're a Mondo Dismo, <laughs> which I think she was like some sort of mispronunciation of a Spanish phrase, maybe, I don't know. 
Little Underwood. I love that movie, Romancing the Stone. Um, <laughs> Speaking of drops, indeed, uh, I realized that last episode passed without us addressing the drop that had happened at the beginning of it that I was so excited to talk to you guys about. Because that, that drop, when I don't know if you heard, it was like some people chanting the words chrome, chrome, chrome. And I hear that anytime somebody says the word chrome, or if I see chrome, that chrome chant pops into my head because at a very early age, I saw a primetime TV special, animated special, Garfield in Paradise, where Garfield and Odie and Dave go to Hawaii or something and uh, find, <laughs> find this tribe of rockabilly, kind of rockabilly hipster uh, uh, natives who worship his, I guess it's a Cadillac, uh, his chrome-covered, like, 57 Cadillac that he's driving, or whatever it is that he's driving. Uh, and so that's, a, it gets them in good with this, um, this group. It's a... Um, that, that's an interesting premise. <laughs> it was, I didn't watch it long enough to see if, like, you know, maybe there's some stuff that it didn't age well, uh, but it didn't seem like it. it the the uh, the natives were kind of just drawn like like people f- from an American suburban neighborhood. And, they know, had white guys playing the hipster hillbilly natives. Uh, yeah, it was, and they went and talked to the they went and talked to the chief, who was very much this kind of jive talker, and and he said, "Oh yeah, it's because we learned we learned English by watching." surf part you know surf party movies like you know beach party movies and so that's i guess also why they were worshiping a high rod i don't know uh but it got me wondering matthew if that maybe provided some inspiration to john patrick shanley when he was writing joe versus the volcano and uh you know he created this uh awesome tribe of they were, it was actually um, a lost, a lost boat full of Jewish missionaries or something like that, <laughs> which I don't, I don't think that the, the Jewish faith really has missionaries as such. Not um, per se, no. But, In fact, they mostly dissuade people from joining the faith. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they, this boat had gotten lost and landed on the island of Waponi Wu and had, you know, intermingled with the locals there so that's why uh, that's why their chief kind of talked like Mel Brooks <laughs> well that doesn't seem too far afield from the Mormon explanation of uh, American Indians which is like there's a whole lost Hebrew tribe scenario <laughs> so Obviously. so the, the creator of Joe the Volcano may have been pulling from Garfield cartoons and Mormonism for inspiration i gotta take and, a moment and made a masterpiece i gotta take a moment here because this this dovetails neatly into uh a brief i wanted to say a few brief words on the fictions that human beings tell themselves in order to uh, uh generally i think it's in order to justify 
some sort of horrible thing that those humans are going to be doing. And this goes You mean like the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) This goes back to our conversation uh, when we were talking about our Indian listeners and uh, we, and Rudyard Kipling came up. You mean my, my ill-timed colonial rickshaw reference? Yeah, you did. Uh, I don't think I don't think that that a rickshaw is colonial per se. I think there was a class system in India before the the rickshaw. But but again, I'm speaking from a place of complete ignorance. So oh yeah, I am. Um, so I, l- I, let me let me let you go because you've actually done some research. Uh, I, if I if I mis prescribed some concern. To what you said, it it seemed to me like you were under the impression that all of our listeners take rickshaws to work. <laughs> I, I was actually really almost more thinking about the rickshaw driver and how one magical hour could really take you through your sixteen-hour shift. I got it. Okay, that uh, yeah, that makes that makes more sense than the the interpretation I'd created in my head. We've we've been laying down an hour and a half easy sometimes. You only need 12 (laughs) episodes to get you through your shift. To get you through a long shift, yeah. A long shift behind the wheel. Um, Which, yeah, I don't... I I admit... Rickshaws have steering wheels. Uh, I was speaking from a place of ignorance, obviously. Go on. Once, Once again, you and I both don't know... Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know what a rickshaw is. I have no idea if they're still in use in uh, in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, anyway, then then came up Rudyard Kipling. You said you know, as a young man, a lot of what you knew about India came from Rudyard Kipling. I'm the same way, and you know, I mentioned that they were that he was problematic, and this is something. This this is the point of a lot of contention in uh, among Western literary minds, and I you know I assume in in India there might be some discussion about it too. It might be more cut and dry for them. I'm not sure. Uh, get at us if you uh, have some opinions on this matter. But I wanted to talk about why I specifically, even though I love some of those stories, why I I'm still pretty sure that today. Rudyard Kipling is problematic. And it just so happened that the day after we had that conversation, when I was kind of rolling this stuff over and over in my head, I had a conversation at the bar with a regular of mine named John. And he is a guy who is working on a podcast of his own with his brother, uh, who is, his brother is very far to the right and John is very far to the left. So they're, creating a podcast where they talk about stuff. It's called, it's called opposite brothers. And uh, you know, the idea is that they have, they have civil discourse from either side of the American political spectrum. Anyway. Now that seems like a podcast with a a thrust, with a a topic. (laughs) That seems like the kind of thing where somebody says, what's your podcast about? You could answer cogently. Matthew, why would you have just one topic? When you could have all the topics. Well, it's really about everything. Anyway, John was telling me about a book he had just read, uh, and it's called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli dude. And I started reading it. It's a very good book. Uh, there are, it does kind of, uh, it, it, it 
it speaks in sweeping gestures at times, uh, but that's not necessarily uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing. Uh, but an important thing that Harari talks about is he defines it's kind of a history of humans, uh, you know, both like a like a sociological and biophysical and psychological history of humans, Homo sapiens. And one of the things he talks about is he feels like about 70,000 years ago, something happened that made humans humans, uh, made us what we are now. And- It was it, psychedelics, right? No, it was, we created the ability to create fictions. Hmm. And that's what separates us from just any other animal that is uh, struggling to eat and reproduce. And the reason we had to uh, we had to create these fictions was to justify doing horrible things. And you know, his implication was the possibility that the Homo sapiens basically committed genocide against the Neanderthals. Now that's something that's disputed, and not sure that it happens, but he points out that throughout history, these fictions that we create are often to cover up and to help us deal with horrible things that we do. And his example was uh, the sugarcane industry. Uh, in America, you know, they needed cheap labor to uh, keep this sugarcane thing working. They decided they looked, they could either get slaves from Africa um, or slaves from Asia. They decided on Africa mostly because uh, they were, you know, under under his assessment, they were more suited to the uh, kind of diseases that they would be dealing with in the in the uh, Caribbean on these Caribbean islands, and in I guess northern uh, northern northern South America too. Anyway, they created this whole. They created a fiction where these folks were subhuman and they didn't have rights as we as we as uh the western white men understood them they didn't apply to them so they could go they could steal them from their homes bring them across you know conscribe them into working uh and you know use this and and even though now we have removed you know even though now that's illegal and we don't do this anymore, those fictions echo through generations in ways that that are that are very difficult for cultures to shake. You know, they uh, and that's you know, kind of you know, where where all this came from was you know a lie someone told in order to uh, in order to help them deal with a horrible thing that they were doing, and of course that uh that is neatly demonstrated in rudyard kipling's idea of the white man's burden and the white man's burden was the responsibility of specifically the british to bring cultural and civilization to uh to the you know the brown people on the other side of the world and of course that was the fiction that they used to plunder an entire country and you know, set its you know set all of its uh, set all of its uh, culture uh, you know upside down, 
and you know do do whatever they want with it. Oh, the genteel plunder of British imperialism. And this is, this is so you know. And he actually he was a writer of fiction. He was a very good writer of fiction. So that that fiction that he created that echoes even more. That echoes in his books where people are still trying to still trying to justify say hey, we got to separate this because this guy's a really good writer. It's like, so, you know, because this guy wrote so well, then we shouldn't, you know, address these, this echoing racism and, you know, this horrible fiction that he created in order to do these horrible things. Uh, anyway, it definitely needs to be, it definitely needs to be talked about, discussed, and addressed. That led me to uh, Hari Kondabalu, Kondabalu, and do you know about him? Uh, he did the uh, the documentary, The Problem with Apu. I, I've heard of that documentary. I, I'm, I'm not familiar with him. And it talks about how the most, the most readily identifiable Indian character in American entertainment is Apu from The Simpsons, who was voiced by Hank Azaria, a white man, and who is a caricature of a guy who runs a, a a miserly manager of a convenience store and who has a lot of kids and you know wor- you know worships strange gods and you know all of this stuff so uh, I found an article in the New Republic by Jeet here and he talks about coming to terms with all this and he said of the many problems with the poo, perhaps the most worrying one is that as a cartoon, he's immortal, an offensive caricature from 1989, given new life every Sunday night on Fox. He can be drawn forever and never change. But this problem is also relatively simple to solve. You don't have to fire a cartoon. You don't even have to fire the voice behind it, as Zaria does many other characters on The Simpsons. You can just redraw it, literally or figuratively. Apu doesn't have to work at the quickie mark. This Indian American stereotype is increasingly unfamiliar anyway. The least the Simpsons could do is update it by making a Pooh a rich convenience store magnate with an American accent or whatever. And a Pooh makeover would solve the problem for the show going forward. The original offensive version of the character will have a long half life and syndication reruns. That's that echo I was talking about. Not to mention the zombie existence provided by YouTube, YouTube and GIFs. In that sense, a Pooh is a problem without any short term solution. The best we can hope for is that. As an anachronism, he'll go away uh, in the way of the other cultural stereotypes in Armenia. He's crowded out of our cultural memory by a newer art, this time created by Indian Americans like Mindy Kaling and Hari Kondabalu. Most effective answer to flawed art is different and better art. The problem of the poo hearteningly demonstrates there's a rising generation of Desi ready to make that art. And I'm really excited about this idea of replacing these problematic fictions with new fictions of your own. And they can be fictions that, instead of you know being created to cover up something horrible, can be created with the specific idea of promoting the good parts of your culture. So I would take, I think that it would be an amazing thing to do. And I don't think that uh, Rudyard Kipling is so sacred that you can't, uh, you can't rewrite his text. I think it would be awesome if an Indian writer took Rudyard Kipling and found everything that we consider good about it and rewrite it all, and you know, added in, pulled out all of the, uh, all of the white man's burden, and added some stuff of their own about maybe the, you know, what it means to be Indian, what it means to be young, what it means to be a 
person in the modern world, you know, take up somebody, take up this challenge, rewrite, rewrite Kipling, rewrite all of these narratives that do these horrible things to us. And finally, Matthew, uh, just to bring it back to us and to America, this got me thinking of Dave Chappelle's amazing Saturday Night Live uh, intro of a couple of weeks ago when he said, these weren't his exact words, but he said that white America needs poor black American lessons. They need, uh, and he said, basically, we're getting ready for, as these as the uh, global wealth gap, and specifically in America, the wealth gap increases, the, the middle class is disappearing, and a, a vast, a vast percentage of Americans are going to have to get used to the idea of be, becoming very poor. And he said, you know, Dave Chappelle said, we already know how to do it. You're going to have to learn how to do it from us. It was a very, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'll try to put it up on the Facebook page. It was very powerful. It made a lot of sense. It was a almost chilling, chilling uh, uh, opening monologue and very, you know, very intelligent. But it got me thinking that there's another, there is another fiction that we've created for ourselves, and that's the fiction of free market capitalism and letting this uh, huh. letting capitalism run rampant. And that's free market capitalism is the fiction that they created, the 1% is created so they can ignore while their 99% of their country goes into poverty. And that is, that is definitely a narrative that they're going to want to change as quickly as possible because that will not end well for them. Thank you. And Shafi. Shafi, did you know that Jesus is for deregulation, for government deregulation? And he's also for just letting the market sort it out. And, just, you know, I, Jesus thinks that trickle-down economics are just all right by him. I don't know if you're aware of this. It's so funny. I, I, oh, just half an hour. You, you make a lot of good points there, Shafi. And for, for a minute there, I was gripped by the fear that we will never escape the mistakes of the past, but you really, you really turned it. You know, you you got had lemons. You made lemonade. I think we can, and I think we should. It's our responsibility uh, as artists to do that. Uh, it's so funny though to me that you mentioned Jesus like that because about a, about a half an hour before we started recording, I was trying to work. Jesus into this rant and because you know that's another that's another narrative that we created did you know that did you know that Thomas Jefferson I believe it was Thomas Jefferson one of those founding fathers who was a Unitarian rewrote the Bible I did not know that like, talk about rewriting an important you know historical narrative uh, whether you want to say fiction or not you know that's up to you I think but, if it was me I would tackle Kipling <laughs> Kipling first. But Maybe Jefferson, first. Jefferson did, or whoever, I think I'm pretty sure it was Jefferson. Well, if that Hamilton play has anything to say about it, that Jefferson had a lot of hubris. It might have been him. Uh, yeah. He, and, but he, he thought that kind of the general things that Jesus had to say were pretty good, you know, that, you know, doing to others sort of thing. The, the words of Christ in red are amazing. And they, they're full of mystery, and to me, they look a lot like Zen mysticism. 
you know. Too. So what Jefferson did was cut out. He went through the main thing he did was remove all the miracles. He was like, I don't know what this miracle yeah. stuff is. I've never seen anybody yeah. do a miracle. <laughs> kind of complicates things. Really. Why does that have to be an article of faith? You yeah. got to believe all the miracles. So thanks again for bearing with me. Bearing with me, and, and of course, get at me if you agree, disagree. Particularly, I think particularly if you disagree, I don't mind addressing it. And uh, I would, well, you know, thanks for keeping it light here in the early <laughs> run of the show, <laughs> Shafe. Let's get <laughs> let's get back to having fun. By all means, I want to get to this segment that we pre-promoted that I dubbed Thart, which is Thursday Art Talk. It's it's Thart with two T's. Kind of like Carthart. Um, I would like to do, I think this is part three or part four of Cues from the J. I like it how when we, when we talked to Jeff, I was like, are we saying last names here? And you were like, I don't think we're really saying last names. And you've said his last name at least three times since then. Yes. I, he's probably okay with it at this point. He said he was the only criminal defense attorney in Kilgore, so... Okay, well, yeah, that would have <laughs> that would have given him up anyway. That, that narrows it down. Cues from the J. New cue from old J. New cues from the old J. As here to answer your questions. Uh, Matthew, what is your favorite work of art? What is my favorite work of art? I mean, for somebody who went to art school and makes art and like, that is a very difficult question. I tried to play it like, like I've done with many of cues from the J, which is just answer the first thing that that comes to mind, you know, really, really shoot from the hip, really listen to my gut on this one. But I have to say at that moment, like 50 works of art just went through my head. I, I've had my love affairs with so many different like artists and time periods and styles and, and like we were talking about Michelangelo and 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 carving marble, you know, epic marble sculpture. Like I can't even say that that's my favorite work. Word. I, I I I don't know. I, I'm really I'm really uh, polyamorous on this. I'll, I'll say I could say a few things that spring to mind though. Um, would be like Greek architecture and how temple complexes were arranged and con built kinetically for the for the seeker to have some sort of like kinetic ex experience where at the end there was like a revelation like you you travel this path and finally you reach the top to the temple and then the way the temple is built with the Pythagorean theorems and the way columns were built with a slight, um, basically just uh, Greek and Roman architecture, like was one of the things that immediately came to mind. Um, Goya comes to mind. Uh, 
French, not French, like Dutch and Belgian 15th century realist and surrealist painters like Hieronymus Bosch. Um, but then I can't, I get really swept up in modern art and impressionism and Monet and, and the, I get really swept up in these, in the innovations of art where, where there was a, an establishment for a time and there was a, we talked about perspective. Jeff said something about the Greek and Roman sculptures being lifelike, but the painting being not as savvy. And it was because perspective hadn't been really established as a tool. And it's that, that sort of change from a Greek and Roman antiquity and a dark period. And then, and then kind of a, a Renaissance and, uh, I don't, yeah, see, this is problematic. Rauschenberg, <laughs> um, sure, you, know, yeah. you know, like, but, but I also get, I'm a Picasso romanticist just in his prolific nature and his desire for all his life to really push boundaries of, of how things can be represented in two dimensional space. Um, like he was a Madonna of his time, right? Like he went through so many periods and just would take it to the limit with one thing and change and do something different. But, but there is a real fork in the road between art history and modern art. And the world changed in the same, there's that sort of exponential change in the world in the last 150 years or something and it was and it was reflected in art yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so that was a terrible answer to an excellent question do you have can can i ask you the same question i gotta tell you in thinking about this question i instantly i went to one place and that is to the manila collection a museum in houston texas uh which is where I have done a lot of engaging with art and, you know, I know my, I know my favorite art is, uh, something in there. Is it Rothko? Uh, No. Uh, I mean, instantly I thought of, uh, this painting by Magritte, uh, called the dominion of light. Mm where it shows this dark silhouetted street where street light is reflecting on the street. I'll put it up on the Facebook page, but then there's a bright blue sunlit sky. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and that made a big impression on me from, I, I remember, you know, I, I've been going to the Manila since I was a little kid and I would, anytime I showed up there, I would go running off to go find this. I wanted to see that first. Magritte, then, the second best surrealist. After, <laughs> after Dali, right? Oh, I mean, you say surrealism, and there, it's to, yeah. Oftentimes, there's one name associated with it, but but there's, there are other surrealist artists, and Hieronymus Bosch was maybe the OG. I already mentioned. Love, yeah, uh, and there's a ton. You know, and Manila has a huge surrealist 
collection. Uh, Dominique Dimonel was like Schlumberger money, you know, oil money. And she, but she, but she was also, she would spend a lot of time in Europe and she befriended a lot of them. Like they have a Magritte that's, you know, that's, it's signed for, for Dominique Dimonel, you know. And so they have this huge collection. It's awesome. And, uh, but they have a ton of little weird statues and big weird statues. But I love the statues that the Surrealists made. Uh, but my favorite is, yeah, there's no, there wasn't really any question for me that my favorite was that uh, Dominion of Light. It seems like it's some, maybe there's two paintings. There's, there might be another one called The Empire of Light, or maybe, uh, maybe Dominion is sometimes translated as Empire. I'm not sure. But, that's uh, what I'm seeing, because that, that, that's the same painting that Dominion of Light and Empire of Light. Uh, anyway, I love maybe it. there was it. a series. Okay, yeah, hmm. I'll put it up. Good on, answer. Uh, Good answer, Shafee. There was a pause that I'll probably not edit out. Do you? Uh, you know, questions about art—they require quite a quite a bit of reflection, don't they? <laughs> you uh, know? It reminds me how much <laughs> I love art and how it wasn't a huge mistake that I went to art school after all. I've been going through. Uh, go ahead. I've been going through a period in my life where I feel like I made a colossal error <clears throat> by going to art school getting a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Art. <laughs> um, I don't... I never really planned on becoming an upstanding citizen, you know? Yeah. And then it just sort of happened. And um, I, I've, I've put together a fairly decent career of being a creative professional and tying those things together. But, you know, I sometimes actually... I'd wish I'd just gone to law school or something. I always, I, I was, it's so funny. I was actually talking with Chuck, the bartender about this the other day, you know, I was talking about how sometimes wishing I could, I could get into a time machine and go back and have, gosh, just a real sit down with my 12 year old self. Just be like, I mean, first of all, just like, be like, relax, dude, nothing, nothing is as serious as you think it is, you know, just, mm -hmm. Just, just take some deep breaths and let off some of that anxiety that you have about being human. Uh, but also, also, I really wanted to, you know, tell him to take advantage of the fact that Lubbock High School had an auto shop. And this is something my mom told me a hundred times. She's like, take those auto shop classes that they offer you at your high school because those will be useful to you for your entire life. And I was like, no. I want to learn French. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude, I was the same way. I, I, I was the same. Although I'm not sure that anybody really tried to steer me in the right direction. And, and it was funny, though, what Chuck, the bartender, he said, he said, Shaver, you know, uh, you know what your 12-year-old self would have told you? He would have told you, just shut up, old, you old guy. I'm not going to yeah. listen to you. You're old. Yeah. And you, Piss you're, off. Some, you're some kind of authority figure. I'm going yeah. to do, do what's in my heart. Right. <laughs> then everything is right with the world. Yeah, exactly. All of the choices that we made were, you know, and in, in, in some by some metric, they were the right ones. I think they 
by some metric. The metric being this. The metric being this is the dimension in which you hold consciousness. It's the, it's the so dimension. you're here and you were there and you did that and listen, live with it. Listen, it's live with it. It's the dimension in which you and I are doing this cool podcast. It's the dimension in which. Uh, I have this, you know, nice little bar down at Springdale General. It's the dimension in which you got two awesome kids, you know. No, no, it's uh, it's, it's not a bad dimension. Can I get a nice can I get a brochure that I can take home and just review? You and I live in the same town and can at least hang out occasionally. Right, occasionally three nights a week, <laughs> eight thirty to ten, right here on this computer. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have uh, do we have any? Should we do another cue from the J? A new cue from the old J? Uh, or we or should we just save them up and listen, dole them out one at a time? Well, listen, this next cue from J is a doozy. I am going to put it out there for you and for all of our listeners, and we're going to come back to this one. All right. Get at us if this one really lights your fire, like it's, it's about to it's, do for me. It's a really cool question, interesting question, and really difficult question to answer. Okay, F says, like Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Cubism, how would you characterize any recent trends in art? How do you think the 2000s will be remembered? Like, this is a question for like the art critic. This is, this is a question for Peter Sheldahl, the art critic for The New Yorker. This is not a question for, for me. However, I will do my best to answer it. Well, I'm not really sure where art has gone. And granted, it's been a while since I graduated from art school, but I do know that at the end of art school, my head was completely messed up about what art is. And I haven't <laughs> seen anything since then that would resolve that to any degree. Um, I think Banksy springs to mind immediately for obvious reasons because I'm a complete Anglophile. <laughs> I can't think about anything else but British imperialism. Um, yeah. But, um, I mean, street art, you know, uh, it seems like a lot of the prominent artists of the last 10 or 15 years have been people like Shepard Fairey and Banksy. I mean, Shepard Fairey did the, the Hope graphic for, you know, for Obama. And, um, that seems that seems like something that's going to last, you know. That doesn't seem very ephemeral. I will say that I don't really get super into the super high concept of a lot of super modern art. You know, and by super, I don't mean awesome. I mean recent. You know, somebody I've been meaning to get on the show with us is Steve Griffin, who's the curator of exhibitions, director of exhibitions for the Contemporary Art Museum here in Austin, Texas. I mean, that sounds like a, that sounds like the perfect segue, the perfect, the perfect forward promo. To ask this question. So let's see if we can get him on, on Saturday night. How about that? Yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, what, what's your, what's your take on this question? You've had more time to think about it than I have. Oh, no, yeah, no, I said this is, this is a question we're going to answer next time, right? Oh, okay, okay. I, you know, I'm going through, I was actually thinking about art my friends did in New York 
while I was there. And my friend Ashley was doing these crazy, like giant, uh, giant uh, collages, I guess you call them. But he did them all from this one weird, uh, uh, this, this one kind of interesting Texas Monthly. The Texas Monthly did this awesome kind of picked a photographic issue where it was like photographs of high school football and photographs of, you know, of debutantes and photographs of, of barrel riders and just kind of all of the kind of wild, you know, traditions of Texas and high school. So he did a really awesome uh, series of photo, photo, photojournalistic series. Uh, and he took these and he made them into these kind of epic i mean that like he would take one canvas would be like 18 feet high you know and seven feet wide or something and it would have just these high high resolution reproductions of these pictures but tiny versions of them uh just arranged in these patterns that were you know that were kind of visually arresting under themselves uh, but it's then, but it's like it's like impressionism in a way right like yeah. and then you would focus in and you'd see the like picture chuck close just, the whole thing was was really wild and really cool and you know kind of you know definitely reflected you know uh, i think you'd have a hard time talking about art right now without talking about social media you know i'm talking about instagram well now that we've talked about it a little more i think that art that intersects with our technology revolution is probably the most, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> like Art Nouveau, Art Deco, Cubism, how oh. would you characterize any recent trends in art? How do you think the 2000s will be remembered? Mm. I think the it's, 2000s- it'll be Some kind of digital different. technological melding of, of art and, and light and space and, I, I I was thinking about all the things that happened at Burning Man with the, the arts. The arts were definitely Banksy's decade, and you know, like kind of the the reflective, like you know, that exit through the gift shop documentary. You know, the uh -huh. whole thing of it. You know, it. You know, the joke referring back on itself, and you know, the whole thing being kind of a kind of a big, you know, cyclical. Uh, you know, in some ways you can interpret it as a con, it's maybe sometimes as a joke, but really just kind of a kind of a game. Um, that's definitely, I feel like that was predominant in the arts while I was in New York. Well, I'm gonna think about that more and then maybe we could talk to Steve. Yeah, let's see about that. At some we point- should, We shouldn't, uh, forward promo anything that uh, we're not too sure about. Maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should book a guest before we say, "Oh, we're gonna have this guest on the next show." Well, we can we can assure you, folks. Saturday's episode will have an interesting guest of some kind. I just got to remind everybody how much I love cues from the J. It's one of our best new segments. Thank you.
And this is amongst a pantheon of great new segments. Yeah. And, and, and segments like get at us and what's wrong with our audio. <laughs> and there's also some old chestnuts of segments. Like, just just some old favorites like Gracie's favorite, uh, uh, just a good old-fashioned news cruise. Oh, yeah. Let's take a news cruise. News about the Indian subcontinent because that's where our audience is. Exciting. <laughs> uh, this story brought to you by, once again, <laughs> my favorite media outlet, the BBC. Shocker. <laughs> the headline is Farmers Protest. Why did a Rihanna tweet prompt Indian backlash? Hours after a tweet by pop superstar Rihanna drew global attention to the cause of protesting farmers, India launched an unprecedented backlash against the Barbadian, the Barbadian singer. Barbudo. Uh, the Ministry of External Affairs released a statement criticizing celebrities and others for their neither accurate nor responsible comments, and top ministers and celebrities tweeted against propaganda that threatened India's unity. So basically, Rihanna had a tweet supporting this farm worker strike, which is based on what the farmers see as unfair laws uh, pertaining to the storage of agricultural product, the, the, the sale, the price, and the storage of agricultural produce, which <laughs> something tells me that these farmers aren't protesting in error of 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 a policy that's super fair and boy the government pushback was swift led by home minister amit shah who tweeted on wednesday night with hashtags india against propaganda and india together no propaganda can deter india's unity no propaganda can stop india to attain new heights propaganda cannot decide india's fate Somehow this reminds me of Kipling and his propaganda. I don't know why that is. Um, whenever, so, whenever a government's response is quick and unilateral, I question that response. It, this is sort of fascinating because it, it's not just government ministers. Then like lots of, of Indian uh, prominent figures and celebrities came out just trashing Rihanna. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, there's maybe maybe Rihanna doesn't know what's going on over there. That might be true, but I, you know, I think Rihanna's probably seeing a, a, a popular uprising and wanting to support that, and I think that that is fantastic. If I, Rihanna, I, would, I feel the same way. If Rihanna's tweet hit such a nerve that they feel like they need to cancel a pop singer on the other side of the world, then maybe she did. Maybe, you know, maybe she, she struck a sensitive place there. You know, that's, that, you know, that to me seems to indicate that maybe she's onto something. I don't know. I mean, it's the conspir well, the paranoid conspiracy theorist in me. The, the, um, the article goes on to say that the massive backlash has left many wondering about India's over the top response to a social media post. But Rihanna's tweet, which amplified the voice of the protesting farmers, could not have come at a more inconvenient time for the government. 
So I, what all this is making me feel, because that's what everybody wants to know about this news story. How does it make you feel, Matthew? Uh, is uh, it's, I, I want to learn more about what's going on in India. And I know that, I know that it is a country of, of so many disparate peoples and I can see how the government would strive for unity, but if they're going to be instituting unfair policies against the working man, then they're going to have trouble with that and, and no sort of managing of propaganda is, is going to change that. Um, I'm also excited to just be more involved in Indian affairs, but it does say here um, that India's sovereignty cannot be compromised. External forces can be spectators, but not participants. Indians know India and should decide for India. Let's remain united as a nation, wrote cricketer Sachin Tendulkar. Um, it's funny how all of this that's going on in this article is related to what we were talking about, Kipling and Indian, yeah, yeah. Indian sovereignty and self-determination and the meddling of outsiders, you know? And we, far be it from us here at One Magical Hour to meddle in Indian affairs or politics, but if you're listening to us in India, Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a review. I have a, I have a great suggestion for a review strategy. I know you're busy, you don't have a lot of time. All you gotta do, it can be a one word review. It doesn't even have to be that descriptive. You could just go write the word bilious and give us five stars. <laughs> bilious. <laughs> yes. One time, one time in the depths of um, oh, why can't I recall the name of the bar? What was the bar on Red River that closed that we all liked? To, not on Red River. Um, oh, this is embarrassing. Lovejoy's? Lovejoy's, thank you, which used to be just called the bar. If you were talking to my friends and you said the bar, you meant Lovejoy's. Deep in the depths of Lovejoy's, one night, I saw Conrad, I was talking to him and I was all jacked up and he was all jacked up. And I said, man, if you could think of one word to describe me, what would it be? And he was like, let me think about it for a minute. <laughs> I gave him a little time and I, I went back over to him and I was like, what's the word? And he said, bilious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he was trying to be complimentary. We'll do a, we'll do a yield word shop next time on bilious. I think he was, I think he was trying to be honest. Uh, right. <laughs> okay, uh, time for our buddy uh, and producer, am I rightist, Alex Battles, uh, dug up a, uh, a Hindu poem for, uh, for Poetry Corner. Oh, sweet. Poetry Corner? I, could, I could go for some Poetry Corner. I think, though, what you might want leading into that would be like a Poetry Corner beat, you know what I mean?
poetry corner? Poet and mystic Kabir lived between 1440 and 1518 in India and has had a great influence on Indian society and beyond ever since. He was an intensely spiritual man, taking concepts from both Hinduism and Islam to present a worldview that reduces man's place in the universe to its simplest components. His poetry feeds from his well of simplicity and has for several hundred years led to his enduring appeal amongst an Indian populace from all walks of life. This poem is called, I Said to the Wanting Creature Inside Me. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? There are no travelers on the river road and no road. Do you see anyone moving about on that bank or nesting? There is no river at all and no boat and no boatman. There is no tow rope either and no one to pull it. There is no ground, no sky, no time, no bank, no ford, and there is no body and no mind. Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. Perfect, perfect sentiment, I think, for this evening. Yeah, does, does, like does, listen to our conversation before yeah, it. <laughs> desire being the root of all suffering. Do not create this podcast. Do not seek listenership. In this, you will find madness only. <laughs> madness we find indeed. I'm rewriting Kabir. <laughs> well, I guess we'll wrap it up. Okay, do you have any, do you have anything else for this evening? I moved some topics to the to our growing future topics list. Love that future topics list. It makes the it makes My show prep list. easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, I would like it if there were little punch holes next to each item, like a punch list. I did want to say one thing. I did want to say one more thing, actually. <clears throat> the, the song that we went out on last time, Mr. Sandberg. Yep, please, Mr. Sandberg. Um, <clears throat> have you watched Pretend It's a City yet? No. A friend Leibowitz talks about, she's constantly talking about the New York that she came of age in, you know. <laughs> she was like, there was this time period where you know, it was a lot about heat and you would meet somebody and you would be like, does your apartment have heat? And then like, you know, that could determine where the night went. <clears throat> I, I, I enjoyed that song immensely. And uh, on so many levels, uh, I, I had never heard it before, but sometimes that's all, that's all, it, that's all that matters is, am I going to be warm? Yeah. Well, you know that you're going to be warm in the in your heart and in the cockerels of your heart and the subcockerel regions every time you come to one magical hour. Just go get warm next to five stars on Apple Podcast reviews. We have a warm place waiting for you. 
three times a week, right here. Three-ish. Who's counting? Uh, I want everybody to love yourself, take care of yourself, and remember the poorer the choices. I started playing in the traveling show, working the Columbia wheel. Fifty bucks a week and I was happy to go. Seemed like a mighty fine deal as far as I knew. Traveling light, rolling just as fast as we can. Playing it right, we're gonna show them what we got on the stand. Love me tonight, you may never see me again. Coming through Oklahoma City to Omaha Kansas City back to St. Louis I kept the beat behind the dancing girls Rolling in the rhythm review Traveling light Rolling just as fast as we can Playing it right, yeah, yeah, we're gonna show them what we got on the stand. Love me tonight, you may never see me again coming through. Through the door in the rain Up on the train and go fast When everybody's sleeping I stay up in the night Look at all the towns that we passed On through Traveling light Rolling just as fast as we can Playing it right We're gonna show them what we got on the stand Love me tonight, baby You may never see me Coming through Traveling light Rolling just as fast as we can We're Playing it right, yeah, yeah We're gonna show them what we got on the stand Love me tonight You may never see me again Coming through